This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. With COVID-19, it's incredibly hard for us to accept that January 2020 will never come back again. Hi, welcome to the EM Weekly Show, your emergency management podcast, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. This week, we are talking to Dr. Gleb Tespersky, and we are discussing the book, Never Go With Your Gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. The book focuses on cognitive biases in leadership, and we are discussing how to overcome dangerous judgment errors. Cognitive biases is when we process and interpret information and how our brains attempt to simplify the information. As emergency managers, we see this play out by the people who we serve, such as when we do disaster declarations and and give evacuation orders and the decisions that people make that perplex us. We also see this in our EOCs and command posts. We can all benefit from making better decisions and a better decision process. Now on to the interview. Gleb, welcome to EM Weekly. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. So we were talking a little while ago and talking about your your book and some of the research that you've done on managing during crisis. And mm-hmm. I guess I would say right now with the whole COVID-19 thing going on that we're managing during crisis and during disaster. Yeah. Indeed, Todd. Tell me a little bit about your research and, and how you got that involved and what's it mean to manage during a disaster? Well, the way I got involved with it was that I saw a lot of people making bad decisions and really making bad decisions is what leads to disasters. So there are two types of disasters, only two types. You know, kind person who divides things into two types. One type where you make a decision that directly leads to disaster and there's lots of these sorts of things. I mean, look at Boeing in 737, right? So Lots of uh, lots of things that very clearly led to disaster with Boeing 737. Or the second type is where you don't make a decision that prevents a disaster or make a decision that causes a disaster to be worse due to an outside external stimulus. So, for example, with airlines right now, where they invested a lot of money into buying back stocks and give, giving that money back to shareholders, now, with the COVID-19, they're kind of pretty stuck. So they're in a really bad spot because of a decision they made or they failed to make the right decision and then they're suffering disaster. So the key to making the right decisions, the utmost most important thing, the key to avoiding disasters and managing disasters is making the right decisions. And that's where I come in. That's my expertise. So I've been researching decision-making for over 20 years. I First, I started studying this topic 
just because I saw so many people making dumb decisions. I mean, my parents, who were actually the first inspiration, they were, as everybody else is, you know, they had the idea that you should go with your gut, following your intuitions, trust your instincts, and so on. Unfortunately, their instincts often disagreed with each other. So, for example, my mom liked to buy nice clothing, so she'd go out and she'd buy a $100 sweater. And my dad was kind of a cheapskate, so she'd come home and he'd yell at her and say, oh, you should, no sweater should be worth over $20. And then they'd go at it, bringing up past hurts. You know, already as a kid, that impacted me. I mean, it hurt me to see my parents fighting like that. But also, I saw that it was dumb of them, kind of dumb, because it didn't change anybody's behavior, not my mom, not my dad. And so I realized that people make bad decisions all the time. Adults make bad decisions all the time. I grew up during the dot-com boom when tech leaders, I was born in, in 81, so I grew up, um, I came of age in 18 in 1999 when tech leaders were partying like it's 1999. And then just a couple of years later, 21, you know, they all went bust. The people who were the heroes in the Wall Street Journal in 1999 were now the zeros in 2001, 2002. It made me realize it wasn't only my parents, it was everybody making bad decisions. But nobody sat me down and taught me to make good decisions. Nobody said, hey, kiddo, here's how you make good decisions. Here's how you make bad ones. Nobody taught me that in middle school, high school, college. Nobody teaches that stuff in business school. And so I decided to study this topic because I wanted to avoid disasters myself and help others do so. And so I started studying it. And then other people started asking me about it once they saw that I didn't know what I'm talking about. And that's how I became a coach, trainer, speaker, consultant. And I also went into, there's very little quality material on decision-making out there in the popular literature. So I had to go into academia and I became a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist, studying how our brain, the structure of our brain, causes us to make certain decisions, especially badly, and how we can address those bad decisions, which are called those bad patterns of decision-making, which are called cognitive biases. And that's what I wrote about in my book that you brought up, Todd. Never go with your gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. And uh, yes, unfortunately, with COVID-19, I'm having a lot of business from people who want to learn how they can avoid the disasters associated with COVID-19. It's not the, I would not prefer to have the situation happen and have business as a result, but that is what's happening. So you're right. Kind of going with the question with going with your gut or never going with your gut really is the name of your book, but mm-hmm. kind of going through training and, and being in the field and you hear stories of like, you know, why did you make this decision? And, you know, you have people in crisis, I'm talking about like in, in disasters or not mm-hmm. making the decision that makes the disaster. But for instance, um, say Sully, when the plane was crashing due to the geese going into its engine and he made decisions based upon his checklist first and then gut second and it was the right decision mm-hmm. if you see in the movie mm-hmm. you know it kind of goes into the fact that they try to blame him for making the the landing in the ocean because it was a going against systems but he went with his gut to put it down at the ocean mm-hmm. in the in the in the river and, and and he went with his gut to put the plane down in the river what is the difference mm-hmm. between making an informed gut decision, that's what I'm going to call it, an informed gut decision, and basically a wrong gut decision? So you want to very much differentiate between gut decisions that come from expert knowledge and gut decisions that feel, come from because it feels right. And here's what I'm talking about. When you were learning how to drive a car, 
you learned probably how to look in the rear view mirror when you're switching lanes. That's a very hard thing to do. Learn back to that. I actually failed my first driving test because I couldn't do that. It's a very not intuitive thing because you are taking your eye off the road when you're doing a really dangerous maneuver comparatively, <laughs> you know, switching lanes at, at high speed. How can you do that? How can you take your eyes off the road? That feels dumb. That feels very wrong to your intuition. That's not what your intuition wants you to do. But you have to learn how to do that. And probably that saved your life a bunch of times when you didn't cross, when you didn't uh, shift lanes into the way of a moving truck. I mean, I know uh, there's plenty of times when I check my blind spot and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm glad I, I need to not merge into that. Is that intuition? No, of course not. That's learned behavior. That's not gut reaction. That's learned behavior. You learned over a long time of driving that you really need to check that blind spot. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself in a heap of trouble. So experts know that, you know, you've probably heard the phrase 10,000 hours of practice, which requires, which is required to make you an expert. And of course, you know, a bunch of hours. Yes. So many, many thousands of hours of practice is what's required to make you an expert. And then once you have expertise in a certain area, you quickly make decisions that are where you retrain your mental habits from those natural intuitive gut reactions to learned mental habits that you can trust and you can rely on. Just like you probably learned and can trust and rely on when you're looking at uh, your email, you can probably very quickly determine what's spam and what's not, right? And you know, delete the spam, keep the good stuff, triage it and use it effectively. So that's, that's not a gut reaction. You have to learn a long time to do that, that you engage with your email, right? That is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Those learned mental habits are not gut reactions. Gut reactions are those primitive instincts that come from the savannah environment. That's what we are wired to do. That's what my dad and mom are yelling at each other and so on. That is what we're wired to feel. And the savannah environment, that's when we were hunters and gatherers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. And we had very powerful instincts that had to be inbuilt in us in order for us to survive in that environment. So, for example, the fight or flight response, one of the most fundamental instincts that we have and one of the most fundamental ways we interact with the world. In the savannah environment, it was critical for us to jump at 100 shadows in order to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. It's also called the saber-toothed tiger response. In the modern environment, we face many less saber-toothed tigers, but people still react to threats as though they're saber-toothed tigers, even then that's a really bad idea. For example, think about COVID-19 since we already brought it up. How did people react to it? Well, there were two major types of reactions that you probably saw. One type of reaction is flight, where people ignored it. They said, it's not gonna touch me, you know, I've, you know, I've seen these things, pandemics before, they, they just passed by, the government is exaggerating things, and you know, this will be fine. Fleeing the information, completely ignoring it, saying it won't touch them. That's flight. A bunch of other people took the opposite route, the fight response, which is you know, going to the store, buying up all the toilet paper, and <laughs> having that response where they feel like they must fight against this invisible germ with cleaning materials and supplies like toilet paper. And also, of course, a bunch of people went and got guns because they felt a need to feel secure and fight against whatever. So that those were the fight for flight responses. Business leaders had the same thing. I mean, I was observing business leaders very closely. And that's my expertise. A whole bunch of them just ignored it. I mean, and denied it. I mean, some of them still kept denying it. I just saw that a couple of days ago, 
Hobby Lobby, which is the arts and crafts store, national chain of arts and crafts store, is trying to very hard to claim that it's an essential business, <laughs> that it's an essential business and it doesn't want to shut. Apparently, arts and crafts is an essential business. Well, I, I don't think so. You know, you can order your arts and crafts online from Amazon and whatever, eBay. But a Hobby Lobby is trying to claim that it's an essential business. That is a very much of a type of flight, fly, fleeing from reality and denying reality. So that's kind of the Hobby Lobby and so on. And there's a bunch of businesses that took the fight response, which was in this case, jumping to their existing emergency and business continuity plans and using those and saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to make it through this emergency. Neither of those is the right response, not for business leaders, not for individuals, because COVID-19 is not a fight or flight response situation, even though that we're responding to it that way. We, it's a major disruption of our environment. It's a very much of a fundamental game changer. It's not an emergency. It will be around for the next two years, optimistically speaking, very super optimistically speaking, it will end in early 2022. And that's incredibly optimistic timeline for when we can get vaccine and mass produce it. More likely it will be something like 2025 or even later, but, but you know, or 2023, 2024, depending on how lucky we get. Right. That is when we'll deal with it. In the meantime, we'll be suffering through this shutdowns, lockdowns, quarantines. And then what happens? Well, eventually there's pressure to open up the country. And once there's an opening up of the country, then there's going to be a resurgence of COVID-19. Right. Don't believe me? Look at what happened when countries that successfully managed the COVID-19 pandemic, as opposed to the U.S., which really screwed up its response. And a lot of people acknowledge that the U.S. screwed up its response on all sides. A lot of business leaders do. If you look at countries that successfully managed the pandemics, like Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, South Korea, once they, they did this first initial shutdown to minimize the case of COVID-19, and then they started loosening things. And what happened? There was more of an outbreak, more COVID-19, so they had to reimpose restrictions. And that's what will happen in many areas in the U.S., where there will be an opening up, a loosening, resurgence of COVID-19, shutting down. And that's what will be the case. And people are completely unprepared for this reality. They are thinking that COVID-19 will blow over in a month, in a two, you know, by July or something like that. It will not. It will be around until we deal, until we get a vaccine and we'll have waves of restrictions and loosenings until then. And business leaders, ordinary people are really unprepared for the situation because their gut reactions are not adapted for this kind of threat. That's not what we face in the Savannah environment for. So they don't feel like it will happen. And that's called the, one of the cognitive biases that I'm talking about. One is called the normalcy bias. Right. The normalcy bias causes us to feel like the future will be like the past. It will be normal. It will be you know, little changes, not major changes. In the next couple of years, at least, not major changes. And it will be like the past. Not it, This is a wrong feeling. It is counterintuitive and very uncomfortable to realize that our world changed forever with the rise of COVID-19 and its widespread. If we had control it at the time, it wouldn't have changed forever. But now our world has changed forever. And it will never go back to January 2020, even though it feels like it must go back to January 2020 to your gut reactions. That's the, nobody's an expert. We have no experts in how the world changes with COVID-19. That's why your gut reaction, you're not trained to deal with that gut reaction. That's why you really need to understand fundamentally that our brains are very poor 
for dealing with modern environment sure. in areas where we don't have extensive expertise, 10,000 hours of expertise. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, there are three things I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about normalcy bias and black swans versus white rhinos. Thank you, Todd. First of all, congratulations on being voted in the top 10 podcast for public health. That is awesome. Since this pandemic, we've been inundated with cities and businesses having difficulties with communication while their teams are working remotely. Problems with call qualities, call failing, so many issues. So with that in mind, what we wanted to do is offer EM Weekly listeners free and immediate software deployment for 30 days during the pandemic with the potential to extend it further if needed in order to help with reliable communication, coordination of operations, keeping track of people's health status, and providing direction to help keep their teams safe and healthy. We even deployed TMED, that's Titan's version of telemedicine, ahead of schedule to help with non-critical medical offices to help them stay operational, and hospitals keeping non-critical patients at home so they can save on supplies and resources. Just go to tinyht.com, click book a demo, and let us know that you heard about us on EM Weekly to get that free deployment. Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to our sponsor, because without them, we couldn't bring you quality uh, programming like we are right now. So please reach out to them, tell them that you heard them here on EM Weekly, and yeah. Just talk to them that way. All right. So before we jumped on the break, we're just kind of talking about a little bit of normalcy bias. And I know that the one thing I find interesting about humans in general is we really like to to take a look at what things used to be and kind of pine away for the good old days, whatever those means. And the idea of the normalcy where it used to be. So for instance, like after 9-11, everybody goes, oh, do you remember when we could go to the airport without all the strict security and how easy it was to travel? Yet, we do appreciate the fact that we can jump on a plane knowing that at least the screening is being done. Whether you agree with the way it's done or not, there is something that's being done at this point. And we're never going to go back to the time where you can walk up to the tarmac Mm -hmm. at the last minute and jump on a plane. We do move the Overton window, if you will, um, over a little bit so people get used to it. And even though if they pine away for what normal was... The kids that are today that are born, say, after 9-11, would never know what it was like before. So this is their normal, our new normal, if you will. The other day, the governor of California was on the television talking about what the new normal of California is going to be with smaller restaurant sizes and maybe the fact that they're going to be using uh, disposable menus instead of the reusable ones, just little things like that. I think that we're seeing that we're being prepared for a new normal coming on the other side of COVID, which you're right. I I agree with you that we are going to have ebbs and flows of this. But now the question is, is that, you know, a pandemic in general, these are things that we knew were possible. And people talk about this as a black swan event. And I read an interesting article in the crisis uh, management journal speaking about the idea that this is truly gray rhino and i i 100 agree with her premise can you talk about the difference between the normalcy bias first then going into the the black swan event versus the gray rhino event yes so the normalcy bias is our tendency to perceive that the future will be normal which will essentially means mostly like today it will not change much 
and we perceive that everything will just go on as it is. A lot of people saw, you know, I talked in the, earlier in the interview about the uh, dot-com boom and bust. A lot of people in 1999 thought the tech stocks would just keep going up and we'd have, you know, the internet would just keep going up. And of course, it turned out to be a bubble. A lot of people thought that housing prices would keep going up in 2007, bought their house, and of course, ended up underwater in 2008. Well, that's the typical cases of the normalcy bias is where we greatly underestimate the impact of major future events, usually in the negative direction, sometimes a positive direction, but usually in the negative direction, because we tend to be very optimistic people and see the future as bright, even though it's often not. And that's you know, also my personality. I tend to be very optimistic and I have to watch out against it. So the normalcy bias talks about how we tend to greatly underestimate the impact of future events. If you look back at your life, you'll be surprised with how much you changed over time. You know, you'll think that, hey, you know, I changed so much. Wow, you know, think about myself five years ago. You'll probably perceive yourself as being a really different person five years ago. But if you imagine yourself five years into the future, you probably think you're, you're going to be like a version of yourself today, a, a not much changed. That's not true. It's always going to seem to you that you are going to change less than you actually will, intuitively speaking, unless you learn about the normalcy bias and how to overcome it. So the same way with COVID-19, it's incredibly hard for us to accept that January 2020 will never come back again. It's incredibly hard for us to accept that our life will never go back to normal again. In, first of all, it will take, oh, as Todd talked about, you know, the restrictions, there will be a loosening of restrictions to maybe opening up restaurants with a lot of restrictions on them, social distancing, you know, maybe your waiter will be throwing you food across, you know, six feet away. <laughs> I don't know. So. You know. Robot raider, waiters or something. Yeah. Yes. They'll, you know, hand it to you on the one of those pizza sticks that they put, that they used to put stuff into the oven. No. But seriously, there's going to be a lot of changes that will be very different than what you're used to. Uh, and that's going to be before the vaccine is created. And then, of course, there'll be reimpositions once uh, people sneeze over each other and there's going to be resurgence of cases in various areas. So areas will be closed down again. So the, the waves of restrictions and loosening. So that's one. Once there is a vaccine found, probably something like three to four years, super optimistically two years, more pessimistically, you know, five to seven years, maybe even longer. Uh, we don't know. We're not sure. <laughs> so if that case, think about what people will be used to. Think about how much time people have spent inside their home. How, think about how much time people will, start, will interact using Zoom and other virtual means. Our habits, our ways of behaving, our engagement will have changed fundamentally. We will not be the same people. So even when there is a vaccine found that's effective, that, that can prevent COVID-19 in the future, we will still be different people. So even then, but in the meantime, you should not hope for January 2020 to come ever, and you should change your life and adapt to the future. So adapt to the life where you're finding yourself right now. We can talk about what that means, but maybe perhaps a little later, want to respond to the black swans and the gray rhinos. Now, Black Swan refers to a truly unknown, unknown event. So we, Donald Rumsfeld used the phrase unknown unknowns to describe things that we don't know and things that we don't know that we don't know. Now, we don't know 
when we will find a cure, a vaccine for COVID-19. But we do know that it's being looked for and there's scientists researching it and so on. And that's gonna be great. An unknown unknown would be an alien ship landing on the planet and saying, hey, here's a magical cure for COVID-19. You know, just snap it its fingers and you're all cured. You know, they, it, it can do it on, you know, tomorrow, right? It can happen. It's a complete unknown unknown. It, it's what's unlikely to happen, astronomically unlikely to happen, but it can certainly happen. It's not impossible out of the realm of the envisioned what can potentially in some magical future world happen, right? Or God, if you believe in God, has snaps her or his fingers and makes COVID-19 go away. It can also happen, unlikely. So unknown unknowns refer to things that we really don't know that we don't know. We don't know things about whether about COVID-19, whether about, let's say, uh, things that we can't predict. We can't predict that an asteroid strike will hit us. Now, we can predict that there might be an asteroid strike that hits the Earth sometime, but there is no way to actually predict it just because of the, our, most of our telescopes that look out at space. We don't have nearly enough equipment that actually can look for, Earth, for rocks that can, asteroids that can seriously impact Earth in a very negative way. So we might at most get a month, uh, month of notice if we are pretty confident that one is actually heading our way. But most likely it will be you know, several hours. So that's going to be a complete black swan if something hits the Earth. And that's something that we don't know about. And we might, a black swan event would be something like the discovery of penicillin for a positive the black swan event in 1928 when penicillin was discovered because a scientist whose name escapes me had just left some petri dishes dirty and some mold grew in them and he noticed that the mold inhibited the bacteria bacteria growth so he's like oh this is interesting i wonder if this mold can somehow be used to treat human beings to prevent bacteria growth and lo and behold you know in a bunch of years penicillin was created so that's a black swan of a completely different type that's a positive black swan that's right. something that we can't predict but it happens. That's Louis, so, Louis, Louis Pasteur. Hmm? Louis Pasteur. Yes. Well, thank you. So those are two examples of either a negative black swan or a positive black swan. Either of those can happen. Gray rhino is a different sort of beast. Uh, gray rhino is one a highly predictable threat. And pandemics were definitely predicted by a whole bunch of people. Most prominently, Bill Gates has been beating the drums about... Uh, the pandemics as a major, major, major serious threat to us. And uh, people have not been listening as much as they should have. And uh, there's been a lot of defunding of pandemic preparedness in this country, even though a lot of people have said that, hey, this is a serious threat. We're more globally connected. Pandemics will spread quickly, especially coronavirus pandemics. And there has been not been nearly enough attention to it. So that's been uh, an idea created by my good friend, Michelle Booker, a few years ago, talking about how we don't tend to focus nearly as much attention on these gray rhinos, on these highly predictable threats as we should. You know, another one is climate change. Obviously, it's coming. Obviously, the world is getting worse and more. There's more climate change, more dramatic variation in uh, temperatures, various weather events, but we're not nearly as prepared for it as we should be. So that, that's another sort of, of uh, 
gray rhino, and there's a whole bunch of others right, right. that we can talk about. But these are examples that we are not constitutionally prepared to deal with because we our gut reactions don't react well to either black swans or gray rhinos. We're not ready constitutionally to deal with slow-moving train wrecks, which gray rhinos tend to be, right. or high-impact unpredictable events which black swans tend to be and we can take steps very concrete and specific clear steps to address both black swans and gray rhinos and that's kind of some things i talk about in my book never go with your gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions to avoid business disasters but folks who just trust their gut and follow their intuition you know, they don't tend to listen to these types of things and they tend to get with stuck with the short end of the straw when disaster hits sure so, you know, I, I find this interesting because I think in the emergency management uh, and crisis management, disaster management, depends on what part of the world that you're in, what, what it's called, we are telling ourselves in a way that this COVID-19 event is a black swan event, and I, and I highly disagree with that. I think most of mm-hmm. us knew that this was a potential. I mean, we had pan flu plans in our planning books. We've drilled pandemic flu. I know we use the term flu. And one of the things that I believe, culturally speaking, at least on the Western culture, that we tend to use flu, even though it's influenza is what it's coming from, we tend to use that as the, the benchmark of all of all disease. But mm-hmm. when, when we talk about this stuff, we kind of knew it was coming. And then when you start to look at some of the information coming out from some of the government agencies for say uh they talk about as this is a black swan event and <laughs> you know and, I, and it kind of bothers me a little bit but how do the gray rhino and the black swan events type thing why in the government decision making circles does it seem like these events really throw the decision makers for a loop, for lack of a better term, on the question. Well, it's not all decision makers. Donald Rumsfeld, who the defense secretary under George Bush, is the one who made the unknown unknowns, which is kind of the same as a black swan. A black swan is a type of unknown unknown. So unknown unknowns can be high impact or low impact, and a black swan is a high impact unknown unknown. But uh, he talked about this, and so there are some government officials who do keep this in mind. And there are some government officials who create pandemic preparedness plans and create the kind of institutions that would fight them. And of course, you know, the national surplus strategic stockpile of health uh, you know, ventilators was created by under the Obama administration. So it was created by government officials who were concerned about the possibility of future pandemics. And then, of course, other government officials said, no, we, we don't want to fund that stuff. And then was allowed to deteriorate. So the incentives for government officials, unfortunately, are such that they're not held accountable for things that aren't seen. So you see the kind of, let's say, the garbage pickup on the street, right? That's visible. You see the kind of taxes that you're paying to the government. That's visible. You don't see what the government is doing to prevent a pandemic. You don't see what a government is doing to prevent an asteroid strike. And there are some things that the government is trying to do to prevent an asteroid strike. So the responsible things that the government is doing, you want the government to focus a lot of its efforts on minimizing the damage caused by a pandemic or an asteroid strike. So either an unknown unknown 
a black swan or a gray rhino. That is ideally an ideal world. That's what something that would be would happen. But the government officials will not run and say, you know, I will be the government official who maximizes the pandemic preparedness. Right? That's not a popular line of getting getting elected into uh, in, into office. <laughs> right. Well, maybe it will be after COVID nineteen, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Right. That's why you know government officials aren't. That's not what they get rewarded for. They get rewarded for saying you know, either I will give you back taxes or I will give you better services. You know, those are the two lines and those are the two uh, dynamics. That's what people get elected on. Better services, lower taxes. And of course, we have two parties in the United States that favor either dynamic. Nowhere is there an idea of pandemic preparedness as, as, as a service even though both parties should ideally focus on this as a major issue. Obviously, it's hurting our economy tremendously to have allowed this pandemic to come without nearly as much preparation as we should. So in the ideal world, voters would be holding government officials accountable for their pandemic preparedness. And they would be holding their officials accountable for climate change preparedness and all sorts of you know, uh, preparedness for there's lots of problems that might come. And we can talk about it all day, the kind of issues and disasters that might occur. There's ways of addressing that, ways of mitigating that in the risk management world. So what you need to do for that is raise it in public awareness, show that this is a very serious issue and government needs, needs to be held accountable for it. Or have some way of, if you have enough, let's say, after a pandemic occurs right now, hopefully there will be an impetus to address future pandemics. However, that will impetus will decrease as people forget, as they inevitably do, the kind of pandemic that occurred in the past. That's why you have stock bubbles rising occasionally. People remember for a bit and then they forget, and then stock bubbles happen, and then they you know, there's a collapse in, of the economy, so or the stock market and the economy. So what you want to do is create some kind of semi-autonomous institution that is definitively funded in a way that future government officials can't easily defund and have it be in charge of preparing for a whole variety of emergencies. Not, not a FEMA type agency, which is fully under the control of the executive agency, but an independent, semi-independent agency like the post office, where that is independently funded, there's, you know, or like the, like the Fed, something that has a lot of power and a lot of autonomy a lot of funding, a lot of autonomy in order to protect us in the future and see it as a source, as a sort of insurance. Just like you would pay for insurance on your house in case of a fire, in case of the flooding, whatever, we need insurance that would be the government acting to prevent, uh, mitigate the impact of future disasters and, of course, prevent them if possible. And this pandemic was definitely preventable. For sure. Well, Glub, we're coming to here to the end of our of our time, and it's great having you on. I could talk to you all day about this stuff. It's uh, exciting, and I love your take on things. How can people get a hold of you? Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Todd. They can get a hold of me for my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Of course, they can find it in bookstores near them, but if the bookstores are closed, I would recommend that they go online to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and so on. There's so there's a digital copy available. There's a physical copy available. You can go on Audible for an audiobook copy. And for my own resources, go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's podcasts. 
videos, blogs, decision aids, guides, manuals, online coaching, consulting classes and webinars and so on. You want to especially check out disasteravoidanceexpert.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video-based module course, eight video-based modules on making the wisest decisions to avoid disaster. So again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for that eight free video-based module course. And finally, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you have any questions about anything you've heard on this podcast, please connect with me there and ask your questions. Happy to chat to you. Dr. Gleb Sapursky on LinkedIn, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Outstanding. And we'll have all those links in the show notes in case your uh, pencil's not sharp or you're outside in the yard doing some yard work during this uh, COVID uh, stay at home. So (laughs) I know a lot of the emergency managers that are listening are super busy. Maybe they'll catch us a little bit later. And uh, at some time here in the near future, uh, maybe when this thing is over, maybe we'll have you back on the show and talk a little bit about how making decisions after COVID and during the recovery can uh, can prevent things in the future. Very happy to do so. All right, Glad, thank you so much for being on and uh, take care. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly. And please follow us on your favorite podcast player. And thank you to Sitch Radio, the home of the EM Weekly show. For more information, please go to www.sitchradio.com. See you next week.